It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. You can't, as a political entrepreneur, uh, push regulation that has no rents to, to allocate. The, the, the rents sitting in the tech industry today are enormous. I think it's something like seven, seven legacy tech companies are 25% of the S&P 500. That's... My friend, that is going to lead yeah. to lots of regulation. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All right, today is September the 18th in 2023, and my guest is Sam Pelsman. Sam is Professor Emeritus at the Booth School of Business from the University of Chicago. You may have heard Bill Gurley's talk at the All In podcast on regulatory capture, where he quoted Chicago economist George Stigler. Sam is a contemporary to Stigler and the greatest living regulatory economist, I'd say. If Bill Gurley's talk made you curious to learn more about regulatory capture and regulatory economics, this episode is for you. Or if you're a regular listener to this show, you'll know why I'm very excited to have Professor Sam Pelsman on the show today. So welcome, Sam. It's my pleasure. Great. So we're going to talk about regulatory economics, and I'll be curious to test out my idea that regulation is the most important but least understood problem for technology development. Does that intuitively sound right or not so much right to you? Well, that's very general. I like to answer more specific uh, questions. It's not important just in technology, but it's certainly important in that area and getting, obviously getting more so. Yeah, and I have a, just a very strong focus on it because I'm a venture capitalist. I invest in technology companies, right? So I work with companies that have barriers by the FDA, by the FAA, by the SEC that are sure. very hard to overcome. Sure. So that's kind of why I'm just very focused on this. But just to get a bit of background on, on you and your work, can you talk a bit about your career as a regulatory economist and your work and legacy? Well, uh, you're talking to somebody who's been around for a while, so I'm not going to give you the whole biography because it would take up too much uh, time. But I basically, I started on regulatory economics in my graduate student days. My doctoral dissertation was on the regulation of banking. 
I continued in that particular part of regulation for a few years and then broadened out from there. The field itself grew, hit a peak at some point, probably at the same time that my career peaked. <laughs> and the two have been declining ever, ever since to the point where a lot of the development of regulatory economics and more generally public choice economics, which isn't just regulation, but where regulation plays a very large role, that has tended to recede into the background in recent years. It's a cycle. It's, it's going to come back. The question is when, and I'm old, so <laughs> when. <laughs> that might be in your lifetime, but not mine. And maybe, maybe it's the time. As I mentioned, there was a very well-known venture capitalist that talked in a very well-known tech conference about regulatory capture, describing it in very vivid detail, quoting George Stigler. My fund is all about that. There are several other funds just because it's a very serious problem for tech startups. Yeah. So maybe the time for it has come. Um, yeah. But maybe you can talk a bit about the peak of the or just what is regulatory capture and regulatory economics in the first place? Right, Why is well, it important? Uh, first of all, if we're, if we're going to get into regulatory capture, let me say that uh, I, I, that's not me. That's George Stigler. And there is a difference which will come out if I, in part, if I respond uh, uh, to your question. Well, what happened was... Stigler is really the pioneer here, and his work in the area goes back to roughly when I started as a graduate student. So we're talking the early 60s. His, his initial contribution was to simply ask the question, what are the effects of regulation, which had, really hadn't been asked uh, uh, before. And he did a pioneering paper on the effects of electricity regulation, which was one of the first major uh, regulatory projects in the, the early 20th century. And he came up with a, a result that it didn't have much effect. Let's put aside, there's a, there's a history of that, whether it's right or wrong, it certainly shook people up. They they kind of assumed that, you know, you tell a story about there can only be one electricity company, and once once you realize that, then you have to 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 let it be one company, and you got to regulate it because it's a monopoly. I grew up with that story, and every economist grew up with that story, and you kind of assumed, well, that's right, and. Uh, the regulator is keeping a lid on the monopoly. Well, it wasn't. So Stigler argued, well, there's no effect. And he spent uh, a, a while pushing that line before he got to capture. But what happened was that, like many of his particular innovations, the question that was being asked was really what was important. So... There were 10 years, this is where I got caught up in it as a graduate student, where people were, uh, economists were going around and asking, well, what was the effect of this kind of regulation and that kind of regulation? 
And I got in banking because banking got heavily regulated in the New Deal. Uh, other people got into railroads and trucks and airplanes because they, because they were regulated during the New Deal. And then there was the, the whole development of social regulation. One of my favorite studies is on the FDA. That comes in at the end of this period. Anyway, there was a whole explosion of what's the actual effect of regulation. And that's where the capture story comes in. Stigler, 10 years later, is looking back on all of this work and he's trying to summarize it. He doesn't say it explicitly. He never, he never said he was wrong explicitly about anything. <laughs> but but in his his capture theory paper, he, he he says, well, it looks like regulation does have effects, but they're they're not what you think. There's a famous quote which I can't surface completely, but first paragraph of that paper, he says regulation is always acquired by yeah, the it's... industry and is used by the industry. Yeah, as a rule, regulation own... is acquired by the industry and is designed and operated primarily for very its benefits. Well, that's yeah, a yeah. very famous, very famous quote. Well, it's not true. <laughs> well, how do you deal with the fact that it's, it's, it's just not true? A lot of regulation is opposed by the industry, at least at first. Uh, uh, some of it is, I mean, when you think about things like licensing, historically, it was always the license, the accountants and the lawyers and the doctors were the ones proposing the regulation, but a lot of regulation, particularly in 1970, where you start getting this explosion of environmental regulation, safety regulation and so on and so forth. A lot of that is opposed by the industry uh, and, they, and they gradually come to terms with it. So, so how do you deal with that? So, so my, that's my contribution, which uh, again, Stigler never really said he was wrong, but at, you know, as things went on, he acknowledged that, yeah, well, it's a little bit more complicated and my, my, ex-student here is uh, telling you what's going on. It's a, my, 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 as his ex-student, I, I, I certainly acknowledge the primacy of, you know, that's a very bold statement gets you to think, well, what is really going on? We don't, really don't know why regulation gets, why was it that, uh, 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 the environment was regulated in 1970 and not 1960 in the way that it became to be regulated in 1970. And we don't have a very good view of that. It, 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 it's a combination of it's the right time, sometimes because there's a crisis. So the Dodd-Frank Act couldn't have been passed in 2006, but it sure could have been passed in 2009 and 2010. So there's many things that will catalyze regulation. And the most prominent aspect of it, as far as 
people in the public choice economics area like me got to look at it was that the one constant is that the regulator will maximize his own interest. Uh, that sometimes requires him or motivates him to give heed to the industry interest, but sometimes it doesn't. The, 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 the main uh, uh, point about the way the, the economics of regulation developed was that it was a public choice problem. That in fact, once the regulation is established, the regulator is going to try to further his own interest, whatever that is. Okay. And the way that uh, he furthers his own interest is politics. What are the political incentives facing the regulator and how should he respond to that? Take an example as a banking crisis. The status quo is disrupted. Something is going to happen. The Dodd-Frank Act gets passed and it gives new powers to a whole bunch of existing regulators. So historically, sometimes you'll get completely new regulation from the ground up. This was a case where we had regulation, but we gave enormous new powers to the regulators. Uh, those powers could be used to the detriment of the industry or to the benefit of the industry or to something combination of the two. It could be used to the benefit of the broad public or to the detriment of the broad public or some combination of the two. It could be used to the benefit of certain customers of the banking industry, not the industry itself, but big customers of the industry, rivals of the industry, and so on and so forth. The one constant of politics is that it does not respond to general interests that are not articulated and made a salient point for the regulator to respond to. It requires organization. You have to be able to lobby the regulator. You have to be able to uh, reward the regulator. You have to be able to threaten the regulator. That requires organization. Okay, so... In the public choice tradition, there are two big problems with that. One is known as the collective action problem. Mansur Olson is the name you associate with, with that. Mansur was one of a, a large number of economists who should have gotten a Nobel Prize but didn't. He was a great figure, and his insight is, is important. So. What's the collective action problem? 330 million customers of the banking industry are not going to be able to organize to present political pressure uh, because not, it's not in the interest of any consumer or even small, uh, you know, sort of group of small consumers uh, 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 to do that. 
there's because what's called the, the because the difference for you is so small as an individual consumer, yes, right? So yes, like a tariff exactly. on sugar or a regulation on banking exactly. compliance costs has a exactly. small it's, impact on your wallet. That's, that's the collect, when that's like, the essence of the collective action problem. That it's a no one person's interest to spend a lot of resources or even a lot of his own time worrying about the minor impact that Dodd-Frank is going to have on his welfare. That's one problem. The other one is, is related to it. It's called rational ignorance. And, and Anthony Downs, who died just last year, is the major figure there and it's it's the I, outcome i didn't know that the theory action. goes back so far right yes, i heard it about back. it it goes yeah. downs downs talked about rational ignorance before olson talked about the collective action problem yeah yeah in, i read it for the, the first time of, in brian kaplan in 2007 the myth yes, of the rational voter yeah, it, but then was, yeah that was long it, history. it was it that's the context in which it first arose that that 330 million people voting for an office, each one has no real incentive to learn about uh, the, the problem, much less to organize and act on it. Uh, so it's the combination of the two that, that the, the, the consumer doesn't even know what Dodd-Frank does for him. There's no incentive. He's he is rationally ignorant. There's no payoff to knowing. And secondly, there's Olson's collective action problem. Even if he knew, what is he going to do about it? He can't, he can't form an interest. But there are other players who can that are not the industry. That's important. Uh, that's why you have this a very common process where the industry can often oppose regulation. The markets sink the stocks uh, the, uh, of the, if you, if you look at what happens to the banking industry, once Dodd-Frank started appearing on the, they went down, they didn't go up. As the Stigler story, simple Stigler story would have it. Oh, here's another regulator we can catch. Now they went, they went down because there's an increase in uncertainty. So you get a risk premium built in there going up. You can't be sure that the industry won't have some yeah. of its rents taken away by the regulator. Uh, uh, over time, the industry adjusts whatever it is that's coming out. It's, and it is uncertain. And some of it is uh, going to be damaging to the industry. So it's going to have to cope with it. But it's organized. Yeah. Especially uh, banking, which had been regulated in the past, had been organized to play politics from, from the get-go. But then there are other actors who, who there are rivals to the bad. There are the investment banks. There are, well, you say, yeah, you're a venture capitalist. There's the venture capital industry. They're, they're partly customers of the banks and they're partly rivals of the banks. They're going to, they're going to uh, learn that they need to organize to influence this process. So, uh, in the end, the only general thing you can say about regulation is 
it's going to uh, do whatever it is that promotes the interest of the regulators. And it's going to respond to pressure, organized uh, pressure. So uh, to understand something about what regulation does, you have to understand how the interest of the regulators and the competing, it's not just the industry, it's competing and complementary interests play out. And the general point is when things get bad for one part of this coalition, the regulator tends to go shift resources toward the one that's suffering and away from the one that's more uh, uh, prosperous. It's the history yeah. of a lot of regulation works like that. Yeah. I don't want to, I want to backtrack a bit to sum up that story again, because it's super important. So many things you said, and it really solved a big puzzle for me yeah. right, that regular listener of this podcast will feel familiar to. But starting in the beginning, that the economist's story was that you had these natural monopolies that should be regulated. I think that was even Milton Friedman's story in 1963, well, everybody, right? Everybody. I mean, there's a, there's a very yeah. old Chicago. I'm, I'm at the University of Chicago, and I am the real deal, which there are very few left. Milton Friedman was my first graduate school. A, a teacher, not Stapler, it was Friedman. There's a much earlier tradition going back into the 1940s. It's not just natural monopolies. It's 10 different things which can cause market failure. And uh, it was very, it was amazingly pro-regulatory. The leading figure here is Simon, Henry Simon's going back to the 1930s and 1940s. And you have to remember what was going on in economics in that period. You're way too young to know it personally. So am I, actually. But I, I knew people who, who had been uh, affected yeah. by this. The, the, we had depression. We had World War II. Coming out of World War II, then develops the Cold War and, uh, uh, and the economics profession is reacting to all of this with, of course, we're going toward a socialist world. We have to make peace with the Soviet Union and, and the elect parties are dominating in, in Europe and, and the New Deal is, is was a politically successful experiment in the United States. The whole economics profession was interventionist. It was just a question of time. This earlier Chicago tradition is pushing back against this. The only way it knew how, by saying, look, yes, there are these problems, but you can handle it within a basically market economy by just regulating those things which create these problems. It wouldn't occur to them to think about the public choice issue, which is basically can government, if you have market failure, can't you have government failure too? We never thought about that. So Simons wanted to nationalize electric utilities because they were natural monopolies. He wanted to to, to either ban or heavily tax 
advertising. Why advertising? It distorts demand. That's one of the cries of the, the left. Uh, then you you have this economic model, and here you have uh, what is advertised, just convincing people to buy things they don't want. I I couldn't convey to your young audience how pervasive all of this uh, a story uh, was, and this was like a, attempting to to prevent the uh, the the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. If we put a finger here and a finger there, we can keep a, a basically market uh, uh, economy. That was the state of play until people like Stigler came along and started raising these more fundamental questions. Yeah. And uh, I really have to hold myself back because there's so much I want to talk about because that's so interesting. Just to drive the point home, right? Because um, that was kind of the economic argument, the market failure argument. There's also the layman's argument, right? So something is oh, not yeah. safe, oh, like yes, driverless yeah. cars. So we make laws to ensure it's safe, right? So that's yes. something that Frederick yeah. Bastiat already ridiculed. And even Milton Friedman, a free market economist, was buying the market failure argument. On comes George Stigler and saying, well, wait a second, right? So how do we assume that the regulators are not are driven by public interest motives, right? They have their own interests as well. Yes. Right. That's and not Stigler, by the way. To be honest, that that's that's Gordon Tullock and James Buchanan. Buchanan got the Nobel Prize and Tullock didn't. But Tullock mm -hmm. is uh, just as responsible for exactly this uh uh this and it occurs at about the same the early sixties mm -hmm. is when this this uh, comes up. Yeah, and that's important to notice, right? Because George Stigler's theory was the one of regulatory capture, right? So the industry wants regulation, right? So you're a car manufacturer, or you're an insurance, or you're a pharma, and, and you want these regulations, right? Yes. And the story seems intuitive for people because you can lobby, you can pay for lawyers, you can bear the fixed cost that is effectively making it harder, putting barriers to entry for younger startups or competition, right? So this yeah. is kind of the basic story of regulatory capture. And that's also Bill Gurley's story, just to bring it back to today. But now you come along and you're saying that's wrong, right? And yeah. the part that's wrong with it is that industry doesn't actually seem to very often want or lobby for these regulations in the first place. So mm -hmm. you said you want to talk about specifics. You know, that's something that you mentioned, right? So for example, the FDA, the Kefuver-Harris amendments were not welcomed by the industry. Not at all. Talk... In, fact, in fact, again, you had this, this pattern where uh, uh, there's great uncertainty about what's going to happen. Once the uncertainty is resolved, there's going to be these amendments. The pharma industry of that time, that's very important. 60s. Is devalued, was devalued. It learned how to deal with it in a way that was profitable. And it's, it was profitable for exactly the kind of reason that you, you mentioned. They organized, they interacted with uh, the regulator. 
in a way that builds up a fixed cost that has to be overcome by a completely new entrant. That new entrant doesn't know what's been going on in this game between the existing pharma establishment and and the FDA. It has to replicate that or buy the knowledge. And in fact, the way it buys it is if you're in if you're in uh the pharma of venture capital, you 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 know they merge, they bought they they sell out to one of the big pharma uh, at the crucial stage where they have to go into stage three year trials. And what are they doing? They're buying the asset that has been generated by both the industry and the regulator. Right? That creates a rent that's being divided somehow between the regulator and the the uh, uh, industry, and it's a rent that comes from excluding new entrants. They're never organized by definition. There's no trade association of non-existing pharma innovators. <laughs> yeah. You know? But, but to um, also quote you for some of your paper, just because it's so important for my listeners to understand that, right? So you're saying it's the maintenance of the institutional status quo that seems the more common industry goal, right? So it's not necessarily yes. like yes. capturing the regulator. And that's super important because you are just describing this rent of increasing the fixed costs for new suppliers and competition. Yes. But yes. you're saying that's not motivating enough versus the uncertainty they would create for themselves, yes. Yes. right? So, and that's for an interesting reason. And See, I can quote you, there's an investment and organized aspect to collective action. The actors are trying to deal with and influence a specific set of institutions. Over time, they learn how to best cope with these institutions. Significant institutional disruptions, such as new regulation, or substantial change in old regulation, such as deregulation, would render this investment in knowledge and skills obsolete. That sounds good. Did I say that? Yes, you said that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's true. So, so, so then it's important to understand that the the people in the pharma industry in 1962 who opposed the Kefauver Harris amendments are not the same people who learned how to deal with the FDA over an extended period that still can, that still continues. Uh, the skill set that you needed to succeed in the farm industry of that time became obsolete. Of course, you had this new regulatory institution that was playing a decisive role and whether you succeeded or not. So the people who got promoted, the people who succeeded, the, the companies who succeeded uh, um, uh, were different than the ones who got promoted in the old days or succeeded in the old days. It, it, it was hit home to me. Uh, uh, I'll tell you was an, an interesting story. I, I, I was involved in, in, transportation regulation as a bureaucrat trying to push it. The context was that it was 
in the midst of a crisis for the railroad industry, every economist knew that the railroad industry was going to go down the tubes if it didn't get some kind of uh, regulatory relief, that is, re reduction or elimination of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the existing state of regulation. Yet, when I was a bureaucrat, we were looking around for, for our organized support. And we said, well, the railroads obviously are going to support us. They all opposed it. They opposed it because their executives had grown up over a hundred, well, almost a hundred years back then, dealing with the regulation. The capital they built up was dealing with the existing regulation. We were going to take that away. To make a long story short, everything we said then, which was uh, the, the early 1970s, came through within 10 years. The industry kept declining. Congress got tired of spending money to prop it up and eventually got deregulated. Many years later, on a platform with uh, railroad folks, and we're talking about, uh, it was like a retrospective on railroad regulation. Now, the place was full of railroad people. And uh, I, I kind of casually asked them, well, how, how are things going or something? And, say, and they all said, well, we have this great threat. I said, what's the threat? Re-regulation. So you see what happens? They were all different. They, they were completely different people who had grown up adjusting the industry to the reality that it was now, it wasn't really deregulated, but it was much less regulated. And uh, there was now political pressure coming up to go back a little bit to the old days, and they were terrified. It was a different set of they. They had now spent 20, by that time, 25 years or so uh, adjusting to the... Uh, to the different market realities. So, so and that's important. Industries do not have a specific articulated, they, sometimes they do, but in general, they, their interest in regulation is getting the most out of it. And that sometimes means they have to play defense. Sometimes they have to play offense, sometimes both. Right? It, it's a much more nuanced story than, oh, they wake up one day, why don't we create a regulatory agency? We'll keep everybody out and then tell the regulator what price we want to sell, whatever it is that we yeah. want to sell. But that's so important just to get that picture right, because that paints a picture of industry and businessmen as passive takers of regulatory yes. action. Yeah. not actively going out there and trying to capture institutions. Yeah. They do what they have to do to stand on the favorable side of what the regulators decide once they see the action coming from the regulator and they can anticipate it. Yeah, well, they and... have to interact with them, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the story is much more of, right, so 
deregulation is coming from, well, the policymakers, the legislators, the regulators themselves. I don't right? really, as I said, I started out by saying that, that economists don't have a very good general story about where regulation is coming from. Maybe they will. I hope they will in the future. I, I hope many younger economists are going to get interested in this kind of a problem yeah. again because they've gone away from it. Yeah. Uh, but we don't, we, but there's lots of reasons you get uh, uh, crises, you get uh, 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 a political, uh, 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 there's never been a great growth of the number of regulatory agencies in, uh, in Washington, if you just look at Washington without democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate. You need both. Interestingly, the greatest growth historically, would you like to guess? It's it just I'm, the number of new regulatory agencies. It's like the 60s and 70s, environmental 60s regulation? 60s and 70s, and it was a Republican president, Nixon, who wanted to do lots of things and was willing to tell, to give the Democrats everything they asked for on the regulatory sides. And on the other side, if you asked who were the major players in the reaction to that, Jimmy one Carter. of them was with Jimmy Carter. Exactly. Exactly. And also Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan and, one of the big players in Congress was a Democrat, Ted Kennedy, of all people. The, the, the politics have to be right. They have to be right for a Ted Kennedy who understands what's going on to be able to go to some of his own party and say, look, here's a, a, a different way of looking at this industry and we have to go on a different path. But you have to have the right political background, and that could be created by a crisis. It could be created by other things. Very important in the late 70s when you got the deregulation of transportation was a general feeling that, hey, you know, uh, government failure is a problem. First time that it had really reached that level of uh, recognition that even Congress people and, and, and their staff were watching government regulation not working very well or government intervention more generally. So uh, uh, the macro background then it becomes important. If, if government is screwing up the macro economy and economists are surfacing uh, inefficiencies that come out of regulation, it creates a political climate that's favorable to it. I don't, I don't think we have a really good general view. Yeah. But the, the, the status quo becomes untenable and then you get change. Then you get change. Yeah, I was wondering, because um, you're saying this, we don't know that much about it, but there were, we can hypothesize about it. I think you said many things that are good candidates for why and when we get new and sweeping regulations. There was something that that venture capitalist Bill Gurley said that made me think, and he said, "You attack him, they have to come to you." 
and he was referring to Elizabeth Warren, who was mm -hmm. coming out and like threatening industry, especially tech, yes. with regulation. Yeah. Then when you look at her list of donors, like her biggest donors are the biggest tech companies. Yes. <laughs> well, that's another uh, that's another aspect of the uh, organization. Another aspect of the organization is, yeah. of course, the political action committee. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It, it's I partly have... to get to gain influence and partly for protection. Yeah, yeah. Gaining influence. It's in the interest of the... I have three general hypotheses of what's causing, or what's sort of at least, not necessarily causing, but what are triggers for new regulation. Um, number one is, you mentioned already, a public disaster, right? So 9-11, COVID-19, or um, no, the financial crisis. Yes, sure. Right, um, Kefuver Harris, the amendments came in the wake of, was it sulfalidomide or stolidomide, but the public health thalidomide. It was, it was an, uh, 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 It was a drug that had, basically it was sold in Europe, not here, but it created birth defects. There was pressure on the industry, but without the disaster, you wouldn't have gotten the, the Kefauver Harris amendments. Yeah. Uh, uh, what does efficacy have to do with any of this? It, it, uh, it, it came in through the back door. Uh, the previous pressure was about selling me to drugs and combinations of drugs. It was that uh, uh, sentiment about advertising, creating demand that, that artificially, you know, that, and, and then it came with the safety scandal. So they said, well, we'll have a safety and efficacy process starting with stage one, then to two, and then to three. But do you mm -hmm. know how that came about or by whom the efficacy trials especially were pushed? Does it, and does it, and it wasn't the pharma companies, as you said, right? No, not at the beginning, not at the beginning. Uh, I'm not telling you where they are. I know where they are now, which is a nuanced position that we can go into, but not at the beginning. What they what they wanted was to get stuff on the market fast. That's was being rewarded at that at that uh, 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 time. When you looked at what happened, is they were willing to take the risk that. Uh, uh, the market wouldn't accept it. And the, that the effect of the advertising was to give them a very quick read on whether the market would take it or, or not. It turned out that the stuff that didn't work very well and was advertised heavily dropped off the screen very fast. The efficacy, if, if you, uh, uh, the, the, the three phase trial. The safety, then, then the the dosage, and then the the randomized control trial that developed later on, quickly in the in the mid sixties, when the industry learned how the game was being played, uh, and interacted with it, with was beginning to interact with the regulation. All you have is a law which says the FDA is going to sign off on safety and efficacy. And you, you can't, uh, you can't, very important, 
you can put a limit on the amount of time. Okay, so the previous regime was a safety sign-off within 180 days of application with a possible extension of another 180 days, and that was it. But once you give the regulator this, you have to certify efficacy, but you can't limit the time. You then get the, the, the regulator is, is saying, well, here's what that means. And he has no time constraint, right? And the industry groans, oh, this is going to be extremely costly, but it learns to live with it. Uh, so I'll tell you another story about being on a panel with somebody from, from the industry. Uh, I was on a panel with, I, I won't mention names, but let's just say a high executive of a big pharma a, a company. And he, he came to this conference already. He, he had a big slideshow and he showed a picture of a frog a huge truck that he, his company had picked up at the FDA's headquarters in Maryland to, to deliver documents and, 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 and to, the, to the FDA. And he was moaning about how costly all of this is and how it was slowing him down. So I said, uh, I won't mention it. Let's, let's call him Bill. Bill. Why don't you join me on this panel right now and come out for the repeal of the efficacy requirement, which is why your truck was back. And he says, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're in favor of speeding it up, but not that fast. So you see what the point was by this time. And we're talking within, you know, the last 20 years, by this time, he knew what he needed to do and he would love himself to save a little time and effort. But if you got rid of the whole system, his capital would be wiped out. What is his capital? The ability to take a drug from an entrepreneurial developer and get it to the stage where he's backing the truck up to the FDA's loaning dock. That was his capital. And that's why his company was extremely successful at this late stage uh, development. He didn't want it to tour. He, he wanted it to speed up for himself. And everybody does. If you see how the process works from the inside, you're overwhelmed by how uh, and, and not, only, not only inefficient it is, but tragic it is that this stuff is delaying potentially useful uh, therapies. But as a drug executive, you don't want to get today, as today's drug executive, you don't want to get rid of it because that's basically your cap. Yeah, that's to your point of maintaining the status quo, right? Once yes, it's in place, yeah, you, you that want, regulation you do then... want to modify it. And that's what he was arguing, but you do not want to change it in any fundamental way. Yeah, the efficacy trials 
are definitely a candidate for one of the most damaging regulations. Yeah, I think it's the only one that gets me mad. <laughs> yeah, or, or do you know any that are worse? Or would you would you, would you say no, are your top five none, worst? None that I can think of in, in terms of the costs. No, no. I mean, yeah, you, that's you're the big talking one. about you're talking about lives being wasted. Uh, it, 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 as I said, it's the only thing that really works me, works me up a little bit and, you know, I'm, but I'm not going to be able to change it. Yeah. To continue on the, the, the idea that I had before, right? So one trigger for regulatory change is public disasters. As you just mentioned, Kifuva Harris and Thalidomide and the public disaster can be a black swan. Right, so it just came out of nowhere, like nine eleven, and it might to some degree. But it seems to me there can also be public disasters that can be sort of through the media or a cultural movement, right? Yes. So kind of oh, yeah. safetyism, angry mothers, right? Yes, and, yes. and yeah, yeah, particularly if they organize. That's the the important point for the political entrepreneur is to be able to organize that kind of thing. People just flailing around and marching around and then going home is not going to do it. Uh, the, the march has to be organized in the first place. It has to be translated into pressure on politicians. And then it has to be carried forward or will dissipate. Yeah. Uh, and that was also the story of Ralph Nader, right? Yes. Yes, very much so. I mean, this it 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 also it also has to do with basic demographics. You had a uh, post-war boom in births. Uh, by the 1960s, you had a lot of teenagers driving around with very powerful cars, and the time was right. But you you, I, you would not have gotten automobile regulation without Ralph Nader. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's a very good example. This isn't something the automobile industry fabricated to raise uh, its, its profits. It was just the opposite. They were they were in defense mode when the auto industry was enormously prosperous because of the kids growing up, and we didn't have a Japanese and uh, German and and uh, uh, Korean uh, com competition. Uh, the market was owned by the big three. Uh, so you had another prerequisite, which is there really is something to get for the regulator to, to reallocate. There were, there were at least short-term rents that the regulator can reallocate. If you don't have that, then you can't have a viable regulation in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they did. That's what they did. They reacted to the pol the political pressure was sufficiently well organized to present the politicians with a gain from establishing regulation. One of those thirty regulatory agencies in the Nixon administration was the you know, the the National Highway Traffic Safety. Like actually, it was a year or two before, but it really got going in the late 60s. Yeah. 
One thing I'm wondering about, and I'm not sure that's true, but is new technology a trigger for regulation? And I'm thinking about this because of what's happening today, mostly with crypto technology, cryptocurrencies, and artificial intelligence, AI, right? So we see tons of regulatory actions around that, even though there hasn't been really like one high-profile public disaster. Sam bankman fried maybe. AI, not so much. No, no. If anything. You're going to get a lot of regulation and tech. Yeah. Because it's so successful. Again, let let me emphasize that you, you can't, you can't as a political entrepreneur, uh, push regulation that has no rents to, to allocate, right? If you take, if you take, if you take uh, a weak broker, you can regulate him, but there's not, you know, he's, he's, he's buying for, for $5 and selling for $5 one cent and there are millions of them like that. The, the, the rent sitting in the tech industry today are enormous. I think it's something like seven, seven legacy tech companies are 25% of the S&P 500. That's, my friend, that is going to lead yeah. to lots of regulation. Exactly. And isn't it, and could it be because, um, you know, to the Elizabeth Warren story, right? So there is a big rent of the existing big tech companies that don't necessarily like the new tech or at least want to control it and not have to be, dis- have been disrupted exactly. by well, AI well, or something like that. Uh, Facebook or whatever it's called now is that openly advocated government regulation of I think they retraced that a bit, right? So Facebook Have actually has been a bit surprised. Well, they're playing the game. I'm very cynical about it. You are going to get ton okay. of regulation of uh, uh, a tech because of the re- the rents. All you have to do, all you have to do, is take a few billion from these legacy tech companies. They'll never miss it the market will blip a little bit but that's about it but for a political actor it's 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 terrific uh you'll create new beneficiaries they'll be beholden to your whatever i don't know what form it's going to take uh there'll have to be new bureaucrats to administer the regulation they're going to require they're going to acquire skills if you're talking yeah. about a few billion at stake, well, paying them a million dollars a year if you're on the other side, once they come out of government, is chump change. So you're going to have that. That is the important process that it's either going to lead to regulation or deregulation or re-regulation. If there are a lot of rents at stake, yeah. you're going to get you're going to get the status quo threatened and if you don't have a lot of rents at stake you are not going to get the status quo threat yeah yeah i'm wondering about facebook because they made a very strong stance in favor of open source ai they're serious about it they're open sourcing their models right so um i don't know i don't know, know the that, i don't know what that means but i don't have to <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it basically means that um, sort of the uh, models for the AI, the software is available for everyone, 
right? For well, we basically okay. earn large parts. That doesn't necessarily mean there's no rent. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, that's a big contentious who, who issue going in AI, to, who's right? Who's going to monetize this? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you can gain from open source as a company. Yeah, right? that's true. You can gain from it in the marketplace, sure. right? So you don't necessarily need to Microsoft decide as a learned that to... a long time ago. When I, many years ago, when Bill Gates started it, he was very jealous about what went into his PCs. And uh, even before then, IBM, the dominant mainframe player, was very protective of its software. Uh, and they learned over time that's a losing game because there's a lot of clever people. The winning game is to make your part of it more valuable by letting lots of people uh, 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 onto the platform. And that's the, I think that's the way AI is probably going to work out. If it gets regulated, you can be sure there's going to be a gatekeeper down the road and your game will then change. I have to influence the gatekeeper, just like the pharma industry. You'll have different players. You'll have different talents. Uh, uh, the, the person who writes the most clever way of using AI is not necessarily going to be the one who gets the biggest reward. Yeah. So we haven't... Another second interesting hypothesis, right? So new technology, existing um, rents, right? Available yes. rents for regulators. Yes. Yes. The third one every, I was wondering about. Every successful firm is a regulated firm, and you can quote me. Every successful firm is a regulated firm. Yes, by yes. By the fact of its success, somehow. Yeah. Look, look talk... at the history of antitrust regulation. Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, IBM. The landmark cases are all cases against highly successful, even dominating uh, firms. Now, Google, you think that's an, you think that's something new that goes back to, 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 to the Standard Oil case of 1903, or whatever it was. It was in the early 20th century. Yeah, that is a scary thought, and I haven't thought of that before. Yeah. Every yeah. successful well, company is a regulated company. It's the ultimate ticket to survival, right? Yes. General Motors in the Nader era was 50% was of the U.S. market was General Motors when the NHTSA at the National Highway Traffic Safety Act was passed. The two go together like hand and glove. So uh, Microsoft is an antitrust case. So you can go on and on, and uh, uh, it's not it. That's that's one form of regulation, antitrust. Or the others are similar, either very successful, or then you get the crisis, which is collapse of success that was the railroads the banks and 2000 it, it the the system gets out of equilibrium in terms of how the rents have been allocated the, the railroads and the banking system was rents dissipated disappeared because uh, uh, of market developments 
and th th then they were patched together again. That is such an interesting insight. And again, so much also shows you how pervasive that influence is, right? Because imagine these companies would, there would be a succession where better companies replace them in their services. So no, think there of will all be, that. There will be. The, 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 the regulation doesn't promote that. It slows it down. That's all you can say. It doesn't eliminate it. Uh, yeah. uh, the IBM case got dropped. That didn't save IBM from being uh, obsoleted by, by old, uh, new, new uh, technologies. Yeah, I mean, uh, like in the, it can uh, eliminate it, right? There are some countries that are really severely so regulated that it's very hard to innovate yes, in anything, right? Yes, yes, oh, of course, of course. Uh, I'm not denying that. I said, slow, if it's the regulation is successful, it's going to slow down uh, innovation. It's not going to speed it up. But I'm, I'm all I'm saying is it doesn't make innovation impossible. Yeah, that's true. In fact, often the opposite. The, the, the game then becomes how can I innovate by getting around uh, 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 the regulation. Not just exactly. to use it, but to get also you 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 create an incentive to get around it. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly what we talk about a lot in this podcast, right? It can be through regulatory hacking, like what's possible in you know the United States by sort of redefining your industry, sort of from yeah, sure. car sharing, not taxi services for Uber, right? And exactly, also had that's like a, a very good example where where uh, had the established taxi industry been more nimble, you, you might not have an an Uber or a Lyft, but that, that's exactly a case of where the, the regulation creates an incentive to invent the way around it. And there's, there's others in history like yeah. that. Uber had a regulatory strategist that was very well aware of the political process, which yes. was part of this. Oh, well, you have to be. You have to be because the first, the dominant player is the established taxi company. We're going back to the beginning. And they're going to fight you. Okay. So you have to, you have to take account of that and you have to be able to deal with it successfully. Now it's a different game. You know, now it's maybe keeping other people out. I don't know what it is, but, but, uh, 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 uh the, the power of the dominant taxi industry is there, but it's minuscule compared to what it was uh, uh, just in, in, in the very recent past. Yeah, these are extremely important insights. Again, one for entrepreneurs listening, as many um, founders, tech founders listening to this podcast, you need to be very savvy on the regulatory stride and be strategic about it to succeed. Although I'm kind of mentally trying to resist the conclusion that you should eventually, your end game should be regulated. I think that that's part of my work in trying to overcome that in sort of rethinking how regulation can work. And there's several jurisdictions where we're already doing it and this and that, but we're not going to talk too much about that now. Um, one thing I'm curious about, though, is a third category of how we get a lot of regulation, and that's a bit overlooked. And that is regulations against unpopular minorities, mm -hmm. right? So think of gambling, think of drug users, prostitutes, foreigners, and immigrants. Yes. Right? So mm -hmm. they're faced with a lot of regulations and restrictions on doing what they want to do and working in an industry that they chose. 
So I think that's something that we tend to overlook because nobody advocates for that, right? Any politician that would go out there and advocate on behalf of, you know, heroin addicts, you know, we shouldn't throw them in jail and destroy their life even more. Or, well, yeah, um, that's, that's too simple a way of looking. There are people who, are, who will, will sell the political process a cure for heroin addiction. They're not and necessarily they're not necessarily unorganized. Uh, I don't think that's the whole story. No, I think that's a tragic is. story, right? I think that yeah. you know many of these people are you know shouldn't have their personal freedoms restricted in the way they have, but yeah. because they're unpopular, right? Nobody's or advocating for them, right? So think of incarceration and how many people are incarcerated for victimless crimes. To move on, I actually wanted to talk about a brilliant piece that I read of yours. Um, oh, thank you. Have... Yeah. Can you talk about the natural progress of opulence? Well, that's Adam Smith. That's not me. That, that's uh, uh, Adam Smith was, was, was worrying about what, what causes an economy to grow that's natural, what he calls natural progress. We would call growth steadily 1%, 2% a year for a long time, right? And, and his, it, it, he, he's, of course, famous for a view that regulation screws up that process. So uh, uh, I, I wrote that piece uh, to say, Adam... It's a little more complicated. <laughs> the progress of opulence also has a feedback effect on regulation. So his example, it's a very famous one, is uh, uh, the, the, the history of investment. Okay, so he thought, he thought that the, the natural progress of investment was you build up the agriculture sector first. And he had, he had a not well-articulated, but very good appreciation of diminishing returns. And then, then at the margin, returns would start to fall. And you would then go on from agriculture to industry. And new capital would begin to flow into industry, and then there would be diminishing returns there. And that's the natural progress of opulence. Well, put aside whether, whether agriculture comes first or second or whatever, but, but it's a well-articulated uh, statement about diminishing returns and how you push, how you, it's the height of the curve that's important. You start with the highest curve and you, you march down with diminishing returns. And then the next level starts to become attractive and you start investing in both. And you begin pushing both margins. That was his view. And his point was that the mercantilists in London were doing just the reverse. They were, they were trying to push investment in in industry away from investment in agriculture and it was screwing things up so my point was said that's all 
But there's also a, a feedback effect, which is suppose you do have a generally successful economy. Uh, maybe, but of course they listened to to Adam Smith, and they 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 reduced the regulation of investment and exports and imports. They had free trade, uh, and the economy starts growing. Uh, the point that I was making a few minutes ago about the importance of rents begins to kick in. If you begin to have a, a successful economy, you will have successful entrepreneurs, you will have successful industries, you will, you will then generate a demand for new regulation because the bureaucrats begin to understand that they can get some of those rents here, push it out there to some organized interest, perhaps, or maybe set up barriers to competition, which will generate the rents that they can then extract and uh, shift around. And that's a natural, that's also the natural progress of opulence, that you get more regulation when the economy is successful. If you have a subsistence agriculture economy, there's no gain to regulating that. No. The real gain is to regulate the rents that get generated by a, a growing and successful economy. And that's the phase we're in now with the tech industry. It, it benefited from the relatively open market that the U.S. had for innovation. It got hugely successful. And now the rents are being shuffled around by the, by the regulators. There's a, a two phases of opulence. There's the one that's promoted by, by direct or no regulation. And then there's the other one, which, which is a temptation to regulate. Yeah, that is such a brilliant insight. In a way, um, progress you. is... Uh, it's success, it's breeding its own kind of, um, how would you say it? Progress can hide the bad effects of regulation for a yes. long time yes. and thereby immunize the regulation politically. Yeah, for, <laughs> sure, so. sure. If it, as long, that's the game. You, you can't take so much that you kill the golden goose. That, that, that was the problem with transportation. It got so much... And the market forces that got around it got so strong that entire segments, the railroads being the, began to bleed in a very, very profound way that threatened the continuation of the transportation system that we knew. The, the game is to be successful in the long run, you got to take just enough to succeed politically, but not so much that you, you kill the golden goose. Which also means the most successful industries eventually become the most regulated, potentially. Yes. Well, they, well, they become regulated. You, you, become you, regulated. Can't, you, mm -hmm. you can't be successful without at least being in the crosshairs mm -hmm. because that's what the regulatory game really is. That's why it requires organization. I'm not going to take rents from Facebook and just give it 
to anybody who walks by on the street. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it to somebody who can pay me back politically. Yeah. What's your, as a last question, what makes you hopeful that we can achieve more or better technological progress and how optimistic are you? How optimistic? I am congenitally optimistic. Uh, I, I must say it gets taxed a little bit these days, but I think that, first of all, I'm an economist, so I, I try to I tend to think about what what is economics going to contribute to to all of this, and I think there'll come a time when we're, we're we're basically in a a world now in economics where we're we're again ignoring all of what we've been talking about for the last uh, hour or so. We tend to think that well, there's a problem. Will there are a lot of economists who are pushing tech regulation for this reason. Oh, this 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 uh, two-sided uh, platform, it's a natural monopoly. It's all the same stuff I heard when I was a kid, uh, but it's just a different, different uh, industry uh, without thinking through that there's a political economy aspect to this, a public choice aspect. I think they can't do that for much longer. Uh, and when they do, there'll be, uh, as I said, there are cycles. Oh, yes, we should have known this. And that a public choice issue. And they'll, they'll reflect back and, 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 and maybe make some more progress that I'm not going to have enough time to contribute uh, to. As far as the market, market is very resilient and very adaptive. And, If we don't have time to get into the macro future, which I think is the bigger threat, if we don't straighten out the macro future, we're going to have very big problems. But if we do, I think the adaptability, I'm optimistic that the market can adapt uh, to a lot. But, you know, I'm, I'm saying the same thing that Adam Smith said when a student came up to him at a lecture and, and said, on this point of the regulators screwing everything up. And he said, the students supposedly said to Adam Smith, you know, England is ruined because it's not following your advice. And Smith said, looked at the student and he said, young man, there is much ruined in a nation. So oh, I tend to be of that uh, persuasion. Uh, yeah, there is a lot of... Uh, a, adaptability and and uh, the apocalypse it's not going to happen hopefully not for a long time anyway yeah i mean just looking at how far we've come in world history compared to any previous generation and how much progress we made is stunning right sort of yes and we're on the is, cusp of more yeah i mean the question isn't always necessarily why did we do so bad in these things like How did we get to get so good? <laughs> You're right, things. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Sam, it was fantastic to have you in the show. There's so much nuance in this episode. I learned so much by Thank um, updating myself on your work. Have you had an interview before we, where we didn't talk about the Peltzman effect? Yeah. <laughs> You're most known yes, for it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I am. But, but that's, <laughs> you, you're right not to have brought it up. It's not what I would like to go down as being the only accomplishment that I've ever 
I've ever had. A lot of no. what we talked about is more important to me than that. Yeah, this, but look, I learned so much from Mesut Sof. Many... You want to do another Please. one on that? We can we can talk. I have many more questions. I would yeah, love to invite you back at some point. Well, maybe uh, but... we can do it. Fantastic. As I, Thanks as so I told you going in, I'm not I'm not bashful about my views. <laughs> and Fantastic. I hope, I hope your whoever uh, listens to this understands that. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much, Sam, for coming on the show. It was okay, an absolute pleasure, pleasure to have you on. Okay. Bye. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great-